0: If you have been part of the church for any length of time at all, you understand that evangelism is the church's responsibility. It's something we are not to shirk. We know that. We know it is our obligation, our duty to spread the gospel in hopes at least some will be saved. We often run into the question, though, how? How do we do evangelism in this culture effectively? Churches have different strategies, as you may know. Some try to use Sunday church to reach the lost, but in order to do so, they have to water down the Bible teaching, the difficult portions of God's Word have to be hidden, sin and judgment and things like that. That's not a strategy that results in a healthy church or healthy Christians and in the long run actually undermines evangelism. Others come up with creative events to reach the community, musicals, movies, celebrations, festivities, youth rallies. There are 101 creative ideas like this. Some of these work depending on the culture and the time, how well they are advertised and all of that. They often take a lot of effort and time They don't last all that long, but they are good attempts at reaching the lost, and there are many good ideas that we can learn from them. Still others think of the culture in which we are, and they say, you know, the church needs to prove its relevancy to the culture, and so we need to serve the culture in some way, serve our community, and that's a very good idea too. One of the ways to communicate the love of God is by serving their needs. There are really a lot of ideas. Some work well in one culture and then others don't work well in another. Some worked in earlier American history but won't work now because of the changes in culture. Some just no longer fit and they're not wise to do because the very action miscommunicates what we're trying to communicate. I had two Jehovah Witnesses interrupt my nap yesterday. I was a little groggy when I came to the door and they asked me something I barely heard, but I said, no, I'm not interested in talking today. I'm very tired. And knocking on doors used to be something that was useful. Most of you don't like it. I guess there's some communities where it works, but mostly people get annoyed at that now. As we have been reading through the book of Acts, I don't know if you're anything like me and you look for strategies for church as you're going through the book of Acts. I do that kind of a thing. Did you notice how they evangelized their culture? The method, I mean. Basically, as you read throughout Acts, you will see two methods being employed. First, the public proclamation of the gospel in any forum where it was acceptable in that culture to proclaim it. Second, everyday people, just like you and me, just talking about their faith in the context of everyday life, from house to house, co worker to co worker, parent to parent, etc. The preaching of the gospel by leaders equipped with the truth, we see that everywhere in the book of Acts, and then normal everyday Christians explaining the gospel wherever they went. And guess what? That strategy worked. Worked very well. It worked extremely well, in fact. Gospel movies and Christmas comforts are wonderful. Don't get me wrong, I'm all in favor of them. Um, Using the Easter season and Christmas season outreach is, I think, smart in our culture. Some ideas work better in one culture, others in a different culture. But these two strategies work in every culture. So we should imitate that. Find the places in our culture where a public proclamation is acceptable and not frowned upon, not door-to-door, as I said, Street preaching is very good in some situations and it's very frowned upon in others. Literature is usually acceptable, online, radio, special events, children's programs. Well, there are too many to list, but you get the idea. Find the ones that the culture will say, that's a neat idea, I think I might go to that and use it, employ it, and witness the gospel using that. Our job as leaders is to teach you So that you know the gospel well, so you can articulate the gospel to others, so that as you are on the go, I mean, how many locations are you going to be in collectively just this week alone? Then think about this month, then think about this year, all the places you travel, all the stores you enter, all the businesses you interact with, all of the neighbors that you see. If you are trained well and you are talking about the gospel, that's our best strategy that there is for evangelism. Our goal is not to bring everybody to Hope Bible Church. Our goal is to bring them to the Savior. In fact, I remember in the early years of the church plant, everyone I won to Christ never came to this church. And I was like, okay. You know, they went off to another church. It's the Lord saying, you be faithful. I'll take care of building the church. There is one thought that lingers in the background as we talk about methods and evangelism, especially in societies that are becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian message, what should we do when the government tries to slow us down or stop the full preaching of the Word of God? What happens when their twisted morality makes them think that they are doing good by causing us harm? How will evangelism thrive then? What will we do? That is the beauty of what we see in our passage this morning The surprising outcome of persecution against the church, which is increased evangelism. And we turn today, I think it may say Acts 8, 1 to 8. I'm going to go verses 1 through 4 today and stop there. Acts 8, verses 1 through 4, I'll read it. This is right after the stoning of Stephen, remember? Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women... He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. That's encouraging to me. I hope it is to you. Persecution does not quench the work of the Holy Spirit and the spread of the gospel. Persecution does not stop conversions to Christianity. If believers respond well to it, persecution can actually be used by God to further His agenda and spread His Word. Really, we see this in the text, both with the cause and the effect. The cause, interestingly and surprisingly, is persecution. The effect is more evangelism. The cause is persecution. The effect is evangelism. Let's look at the cause. That's the bulk of this passage, verses 1 through 3. Here we see in verse 1 that Saul was in agreement, right? He wanted this wonderful saint of God, Stephen, to be killed. He wanted that. He wanted Stephen eliminated from the face of the earth. Can you believe that? Stephen was a great man. He believed Stephen, though, was blaspheming his God. And the penalty in the law of Moses for such a crime was death. Saul, you know, later was the... uh, unconverted Paul, you turn into the converted Paul, I mean. Right now, he's the unregenerate Paul. He's the Paul that doesn't know Christ. This is him in action. You need to see this because anytime you read any of his letters or we go go through and we talk about the grace of God that he uh, explains in his epistles, you need to be amazed because this is the raw material that God took to use. This is the real Paul apart from Christ. This Saul right here, the unregenerate Saul. He he proved Stephen right when Stephen said, you're stiff-necked, that was Saul, uncircumcised in heart and in ears, that was Saul. He was resisting the Holy Spirit. He wasn't listening to anything God was telling him. Saul demonstrated religion at its worst, self-righteous and violent. Later in his redeemed condition, Paul himself would warn of religious men who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. And you know what his advice was to us about men like that? Avoid them. Stay away from them. Now he's talking about his old self, holding to a form of godliness but denying the whole substance and power of it. Religious externally but knowing not the power of Christ inwardly. There are religious leaders to avoid, and that was him, the Hebrew, the Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, the hypocrite. If you skip down to verse 2 for a moment, it goes on to point out that though these hostile men killed Stephen, devout men did what for him? Buried him, right? Devout men refers to their devotion to God. It likely means that these were believers from the church. There were some that were referred to as devout Jews, it might have been them, but these appear unafraid and they're they're making a stand here by burying Stephen and giving him a proper burial. A proper burial was needed, they they felt, and they truly feared God. You know, in the Jewish Mishnah, which gave a lot of the rules for Jewish life uh, around that time, it stated that Jews were not allowed to mourn the death of a person who was condemned to death for a crime. But here it says they made loud lamentation, which means people were hearing them, which means they were not afraid. They were making a statement. This was an innocent man, and they were loudly mourning his death. This was unjust that this happened to him is what they were saying. These were bold men, and they went on record protesting Stephen's killing. Kind of reminds us of the courage of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Do you remember what they did? They took the body of Jesus, remember, off of the cross, and they asked Pilate, can we have the body? We want to give it a proper burial. took boldness to go against the Sanhedrin. took boldness to come out there in the public and say, I want that body, and I want to honor that body properly and give it a proper burial. Jesus Himself was a condemned criminal. That's why He died on a cruel cross. You know, the Jews honored the body at death. The Jews gave the body a proper burial. They laid that body in the ground. Why? In anticipation of the Lord resurrecting that body from the dead. They were not like the Greeks who discounted the importance of the body. In Hebrew thinking and Christian thinking, the body was important. And so, when the Christians continued this, they really followed in burial. Back to verse 1. It points out there that the death of Stephen resulted in a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. This is the first time that the… The word persecution is used in the book of Acts. It will not be the last time that it is used. Certainly, the idea of persecution was already coming. The dark clouds were there. They were harassed. But here, full-blown persecution breaks out. Later in Acts chapter 13 and verse 50, the tables are going to be turned on the Apostle Paul because there it says that he as a Christian was going to suffer persecution from others. Here he's the persecutor. There he is the persecuted. Persecuted. And this was no small persecution. Please notice the word great, mega in Greek. What does that mean? That means it wasn't just one incident. It wasn't a day or two, and then it began to whittle down. This was widespread persecution all around Jerusalem and its vicinity. It was systematic, door to door. It was persistent until they got as many as they could. Remember, this was a church with thousands of members, probably tens of thousands of members. But their time of peaceful ministry and enjoying each other from home to home, with prayer time in the home and breaking bread in the home and recounting the apostles' doctrine in the home, all of that time was over. Their lives were completely upheaved. As the gospel witness effectively penetrated all the city of Jerusalem, the authorities increased their pressure on this church of Jesus. We've already seen their strategy against the church. It went from first the apostles were brought in and they were given a stern verbal warning in chapter 4, and then they were brought in a second time, they were given a warning and then they were flogged, beaten. Then we've seen stone, uh, Stephen dragged before the court and stoned to death. Now it just in a massive effort to silence the Christians, the New Testament gospel They pursued them into their homes, dragged them out, arrested them, shut them in prison to silence them and to keep this message from spreading and converting any more Jews. By the way, it's always a weakness of a religion that they can't handle a message that goes against them, right? I don't have any respect for the Muslim religion if, in the vast majority of their countries, they make it illegal to convert out of their religion. Well, no wonder they don't convert out of their religion, there's no competition. It's called a cartel. And if, you, if your religion can handle it, then let it stand the test of truth. Let it stand debate. Let people write things against it. That's what happens to Christianity here, yes? Everywhere people are writing against it, speaking against it, lobbying against it, and it still thrives. You know why? Because it is the truth. That's why. And we don't have anything to be afraid of. This very large church at Jerusalem... With all of its good works that it was doing, caring for those widows, the prayers that were being sent up, all the truthful preaching was now being ravaged, was being targeted like they were criminals, like they were the dregs of society. And Luke, who wrote Acts and who was a traveling companion of Paul, he made sure to write it like it was. How do we know the Bible is the Word of God? Because it tells on its leaders. You know… Noah got drunk, his nakedness was exposed. Wah 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 right. <laughs> King David commits adultery, sends the wife to the front lines to die. Abraham tells Pharaoh, She's my sister, as your wife, because he was a chicken. Why is the Bible God's Word? Because the greatest men, Moses, you name it, they're, all their weaknesses are on display. So Luke didn't hesitate as the Spirit was moving him to write, yeah, guy I'm with, Apostle Paul, that was him there. There he is. There's the raw Paul. Saul, the young man, and all those under his sway were ravaging the church of Jesus. That term ravaging, lumino, was used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, for Asa, the king who oppressed his own people. It was also used of a wild boar that was eating away at flesh. It's translated destroys in Psalm 80 verse 13. The NIV, I think, if you have the NIV, it translates it here, destroys. Destroying the church, ravaging the church, eating at the church, tearing at the flesh of the church. Notice the threefold description of this wild boar in God's house, this destroyer. They were entering their homes. They were dragging the believers off. That's a very strong term used for dragging fish in a net and pulling them in against their will, and then they locked them in prison. Somehow, Saul knew who was part of this movement of Jesus and where their homes were. Some have speculated that he was in that synagogue along with Stephen because he was a Greek-speaking Jew and he knew who was in there and was debating, and he kind of collected information that way. We won't really know. But he knew, he calculated, and he broke into their homes violently, he arrested them, he dragged them away, men and women, and locked them behind bars. Can you imagine how you would handle this? If this building one day, they broke the doors down, they came in and they started hauling some of you, and you no longer get get to have dad at home, you no longer get to have your wife there anymore. Maybe both of them are gone. This was a highly motivated religious man. He took his religion very seriously, about as seriously as a man could. Saul heard Stephen's words, and he foresaw the logical outcome of this message about Jesus from Nazareth. He was convinced it would lead the Jews astray from Moses, away from the temple, and away from the law of God. And he wanted it stopped he was willing to do whatever was necessary to stop the infant Christian movement. Would that we would have more zeal and commitment for the truth than he had for a lie. Brothers and sisters, not everyone who thinks that they have a right cause out there in society or in religion or on the media or in the government actually has a righteous cause. Just because they're apologists for their own cause doesn't mean it's actually good. Some, many, who think that they're doing right are doing more damage to godly people and to the church, and they are the most dangerous people in society. The ones who think they're right, who are morally lecturing others while they're beginning to ravage and hurt the church, they're the most dangerous ones in society. The church had faced many wiles of the devil, but this one... This was a full-out front-door assault against him. The most dangerous man against Christianity was Saul. He was the preeminent tool of the devil. And so are those today who lecture others and punish others and defame the character of others, thinking that they're, they're doing right while their intellect and their viewpoint is not bowed to the authority of Scripture. They are not good, though they think of themselves that way. And you know, many of them just keep talking and talking and moralizing and moralizing and lecturing and lecturing, and they get more and more bold in their point of view. Beware of them. They're getting louder and louder. Their righteousness is unrighteousness. And that was Paul's mindset, fully justified in his violent action. He wasn't thinking to himself right now, I'm doing wrong Only later would Paul see the error of his way. After conversion, the fullness of that would come come to his mind. He would say in Acts 22 when he was recounting these days, he wrote about himself, in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. He's talking to Jesus here. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. There's his testimony. Full confession, right? Right? Acts 26, 11. again, Paul recounting these days. As I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. He tried to force them to confess against Christ. And being furiously enraged at them, remember the gnashing of the teeth? I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Men would not quit. He was a bulldog. He was a hound dog. Christians are running from this guy. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he said, I am the least of the apostles. He was not exaggerating. He wasn't, this wasn't phony humility. This is what he believed of himself. He said, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Timothy 1, 13, I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and violent aggressor. By the way, if you don't think that your sins can be forgiven, Paul already said, I'm the worst sinner. So if he's the worst and he's forgiven, you're okay as long as you confess your sins. Here the church was facing the consequences for following Christ. Just as we learned last time, Christ said, pick up your cross and follow after Him. So these Jewish believers did that very thing. And Stephen did, all the way to martyrdom. What an example he was, a glorious entrance into heaven. They were suffering with their families being torn apart with the violation of their homes, with unjust imprisonment. They were torn away from their homes. These are the homes I said they broke bread together here. They discussed the apostles' doctrine in these homes. Now the doors are being knocked down. So this is a terrible thing that happened. These were precious brothers and sisters in Christ. These were good people. Where was God in this? Where was God? Why didn't He intervene? What was God doing allowing His chosen ones to suffer like this? Well, God has His purposes. We don't always know what they are. He has purposes for persecution, as horrific as it may be. His purpose for the unbelieving Jews was this persecution against the church in large part confirmed finally and certainly that the Jews were indeed rejecting Jesus and His kingdom And it would only be a few years after this in 70 AD where God would bring those Roman armies and this entire city would be utterly destroyed. Not that God has rejected Israel for all of eternity, but that generation was rejected. They were taken off of their land. This persecution against the church driving them out was sort of like the last straw that said, we don't want that gospel witness around us. It confirmed they rejected Christ. For the church, this persecution... Resulted in the scattering of the saints, as you see. The verb there, diaspero, scattered, is uh, the one from which uh, we derive the term the diaspora, and uh, it refers to when the Jews in the Old Testament were dispersed among the nations. They were dispersed because of their unfaithfulness to God. In the Old Testament, God scattered the unfaithful Jew in judgment, but here, God was allowing the faithful church this time to be scattered, not as punishment. What was his purpose? His purpose was to advance the gospel and the church and its witness to the very ends of the earth. It says that they were all scattered. That all, by the way, doesn't mean every last believer in Jerusalem. Luke will often employ the term pass or or all to mean the vast majority, meaning it's not a segment of the church that was scattered, but the whole church was affected by this persecution and, and they fled. They got out every way that they could out of Jerusalem. These massive numbers of disciples left Jerusalem hastily, really without warning, all of this came upon them. They didn't know what was going to happen when, when Stephen was stoned. They, didn't, they couldn't foresee that happening so quickly as it did. It wasn't something that they had, you know, several months to plan for and get their home in order and pack all their belongings. This happened suddenly on them. And they started pouring out, where? To all the neighboring regions right around them. That's exactly where they would go, the closest areas that were safe, Judea and Samaria. Geographically, those were the two closest to Jerusalem. Luke mentions them here, I think, to draw a clear parallel to Jesus' words and show that Jesus' words were being fulfilled. Remember back in Acts 1.8? Before Jesus had ascended to heaven, He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses, both in Jerusalem, that's now been done, and in all Judea and Samaria, that's now what's about to happen. And even where? To the remotest parts of the earth, right? Remember, at this time, the church and the gospel of Jesus had been largely kept in a tiny little geographical area, just the city of Jerusalem in its vicinity. Christ wanted it to go far and wide, And the spreading of the gospel was not due to a committee sitting around in church and saying, hey, we've got a strategy, let's begin sending out the gospel to Judea and Samaria. It was due to something the church would never want to have happen to them, and that is persecution. Each believer under this persecution was faced with the question, do we stay here and risk being thrown in the prison, losing our homes, losing our livelihood, to have our family torn out of our arms? Or do we flee? We flee our homes and venture off and see what God may have for us. Most of them wisely decided to run. It's important to note that the first persecution against Christians was not from the Romans, but was from who? The Jews. They were the first persecutors of Christianity. I have periodically wondered what would happen to churches like ours if the increasingly extreme liberal politicians... And the anti-Christian business CEOs and the hostile liberal media, not to mention academia, eventually get their way, and they're pushing for it very hard, without anyone to slow them down anymore, without anyone to fight against them, what will happen to churches like this? Because they will not leave us alone. And if you think that they will leave us alone, you're naive. We may be hit hard too and we, like others, will have tough choices to make. Some of us may be moved against our will to spread the gospel somewhere to fit what God's will is. We like it here. We're comfortable here. We have our jobs here, our homes here. This is the way we like life, and who knows what the future may hold. What we used to talk about hypothetically now seems likely in the not-too-distant future. Now we must also note... There was one group who decided to remain in Jerusalem. Did you catch them? Verse 1 says, who stayed? The 12 apostles, right? That little note has generated a little bit of discussion. Why did they stay? How could they have avoided capture? Some people believe that since Stephen was Greek-speaking and Saul was too, that the persecution was aimed primarily at the Hellenistic wing of the church. The 12 apostles were in the Hebrew wing of the church. That's possible. But Luke makes no distinction here. The church is spoken of as a unit and the persecution widespread. In fact, it leaves the impression that the whole church was targeted. He even speaks of the church as all leaving, the church all together being persecuted. So another explanation is that the 12 apostles still believed that they had a testimony to bear in Jerusalem that it was their responsibility to stay, that their witnessing post could not be abandoned, that they just had to take the risk. They had to put their lives on the line and stay there. It might also be that because of the comment made way back in Acts chapter 5 and verse 13 that even the Jewish people who were not yet in the church held the Christian apostles in such high esteem, it says they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even associate with them, that many of even the Hebrew unbelievers, they hadn't joined the Christians yet, but they understood how wrong the leaders were, and they helped to protect some of these leaders. Eusebius, in book number three of his ecclesiastical history, notes that the twelve apostles were from this point on in constant danger from murderous plots, and eventually they too left Jerusalem and that is what launched the apostolic witness that went to the ends of the world. But for now, they would stick it out longer, and they would be ready to die for their lord if needed. Indeed, one of the 12, James, not the James who wrote the letter in the Bible, but James the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, he would be the first apostle to suffer martyrdom in Acts chapter 12. So they put their lives on the line for the witness. That's the cause. Now let's look at the effect. Verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered, and we know why they were scattered, went about preaching the word. The connection to the persecution is in the first word, therefore. The persecution broke out, and therefore, those who had been scattered went about, it doesn't say went about sorrowful, went about moaning and complaining. It says they went about what? Preaching the word. That is so instructive, that's so encouraging. The result of this persecution was the scattering of the church and the preaching of the Word. By the way, it is not wrong to flee persecution when it comes. Please notice. Nor is it cowardice to run to protect your family. Avoiding unneeded conflict is wise. Even our Lord Jesus knew to avoid conflict, and He would say things like, My time has not yet come. He would withdraw from an area that was dangerous. He was no coward when it came time to face what he had to. There's no one more courageous than Christ. There is no virtue in looking for people to hate us. And any who might think it wise to pray for persecution because they think of all the cleansing benefits it may bring to the church, well, they're foolish. They know not the suffering they wish for other good believers because it won't just be the foolish believers that get persecuted. The ones that are most faithful will be the ones most persecuted. If God uses persecution, that is His sovereign choice. We're not to question it. But we are not to seek it either. And we're certainly not to pray for it. Never do you find the saints praying for persecution or praying for trouble only for the fortitude to endure it and to honor God in the midst of it. Nor should we approve of politicians today who value defending the rights of every sin that is out there while refusing to defend our God-given and constitutional right for over 400 years in this land to speak against any sin that we believe that God wants us to speak against. That is how persecution will begin in the American church. Sad will be the day when persecution begins against the true church in America, and we find out that it was the church, the Christians themselves, who helped to vote the persecutors into power. The scattering of this church, brave though she was, tells us how ugly and unjust and difficult persecution is. I do not long for it. I long for heaven. But if the Lord brings it, I want to be ready for it. This was a faithful church. This was a loyal church to Jesus. That's clearly testified in the next phrase went about preaching the word. They went about. That shows them in motion. They're moving away from Jerusalem, they're going out into Judea and then a little further up north into Samaria, multiple directions. Jerusalem was kind of middle Judea, so when you leave Jerusalem, you're going out into the Judean countryside. Satan's persecution was, you might say, outfoxed by God, right? The Lord used the persecution to push the Jesus movement in every direction, can't outsmart God. Stomping on the church in one location only sent the sparks flying, and now the fire was spreading everywhere. And they all went about preaching the word. Please note, this is not the 12 apostles. We've talked a lot about the unique testimony of the 12 apostles. This is not the 12 apostles. This is not only the seven, although Philip is going to be highlighted. This is all the Christians. This is the thousands of them. This is the rank and file members. This is the, the boys and girls who believed also. This is the men and women This is all of them out there doing evangelism, people like you. There was a new, wide-open field for the message of the gospel of the kingdom, not because it was a planned program, I repeat, but a surprising development by a sovereign God. Away from Jerusalem now, they were more free to preach wherever they wanted, although Saul was chasing them there also. And that means, again, as they talked about the word and they said some here and they said some here, it's like the sower that went out to what? Sow seeds. You get a better crop if you sow more seeds, right? If you drop one or two seeds and say, I never win anyone to Christ. Well, of course you don't. Two seeds, three seeds, four seeds. Get a handful and wing it. (laughs) Cast it out there. Not just all the ones at your feet that you run into. We've said before that Luke is always concerned with chronicling the spread and the effect of the Word of God. He'll say later in this chapter, in verse 14, it says, the Samaritans received the Word. That's what he's interested in, see? So then they went out and they were spreading the Word. And then it says, and the Samaritans received the Word. Ah, it's all connected back to the persecution. Go to Acts chapter 8 and 25, news about uh, receiving the... uh, News about receiving the gospel comes to the ears of the apostle and they send Peter and John down. We'll get to that. It talks about in in verse 25, they were preaching to many of the villages as they're going through the area of Samaria. And we'll talk about why that was so significant. The story being told in the book of Acts is not just about the church or the Holy Spirit or the apostles, it's about the word, the word being carried to new locales. God's gospel, the word is getting out. It's what it's all about. It's the story of the spread of the word. You got saved by listening to the word. I got saved by listening to the word. Nobody else is ever going to be saved unless they hear the word. It's about spreading the word in any and every means that we can. They went preaching the word. Don't get hung up on that word preaching, by the way. You don't need a pulpit to preach. The term there is "yangalidzo." We get our word evangelized from it. It means Proclamation. It means they're telling good news. It's a proclaiming of good news. Hey, i got good news I'd like to share with you. Can I share it? Now you're evangelizing. You're preaching. You don't need a pulpit to evangelize. Just speak it wherever you go, in whatever forum you are given, as long as they will listen. Don't, don't have a fake humility. When someone gives you an opportunity to say something, don't say, well, I, I can't, I can't, I can't say that. I, I, I can't, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be the one to speak there. Take your opportunity and say something for Christ. It's not about you. This is what they did. It's really that simple. If they give you a form, take it. Hey, can I explain to you how I know I have eternal life and how you can know it too? No, get out of here, you bum. Okay, then you get out of there. But if they say yes, what are you holding back for? I'm sure they shared it on the road as they traveled, in businesses as they interacted with tradesmen. In the synagogues where they went. I mean, Paul went right to the synagogue to find them. In the homes of neighbors, by the well, getting water. I remember when we were in LA and we were doing a lot of street evangelism, we would go to the watering hole. The watering hole in LA, I found that out. So people live in apartments, they come down to get their jugs filled in this place and it's out in the streets and it's you know it's hot. People hang out there for a long time as they're waiting in line to get their their water jugs filled, and we just use those as opportunities to talk to people and they were like. Often very willing to listen. Found out later some of them were gang members, but that goes, that's besides the point. (laughs) Please understand, they did not just start talking about the gospel when the persecution started. The word was already burning in their hearts, don't you think? So when the persecution arose, they just simply did what they knew how to do. They talked about Jesus. People always talk about what is on their hearts. Do you agree? Do you speak about the gospel? It was the word on their hearts and they shared what they knew everywhere. Do you think all of these people knew what Peter and James and John knew? No. They shared what they knew. How did they know what to say? Because they've been taught like 2 or 3 years constantly with solid apostolic doctrine in that church that emphasized a word-driven kind of ministry. And now all of these people having heard the word again and again and again and having been prayed for, were ready to go ahead and spread the gospel. They'd been drilling that mega church with the doctrines of Christ for years. They were well equipped by their teachers. It's that simple. You could do the same. You probably know 10 times, 20 times as much Bible about the message of Christ and the va- as the vast majority of people that you're going to bump into in a week. If you bump into someone who knows more, give it a shot. It won't hurt. It might hurt your pride. It'll make you want to learn more. You can get more equipped. You could go to the first hour classes and learn the word Better. Attend your small group. Take a Bible Institute class. Interact more with others. Have great conversations at lunch on Sundays about the things you're learning. Even when you don't know what to say, you can pass out tracts. Sometimes people won't let you talk, but they will take something written from your hands. Anyways, it was always about getting the Word out. Applying this text to our situation is easy in some ways it's different in other ways we are not being persecuted yet we are not being scattered yet but we see their commitment to evangelism we see the importance of the emphasis on local evangelism We see that wherever they went, they bloomed. You know the saying, bloom where you're planted? Don't worry about where you're not. This is where you are. Bloom there. I don't want my flowers complaining to me, hey, you put me here. I want to be on the other side of the yard. I planted you there. Be quiet. (laughs) I know I'm losing it in my garden. (laughs) Plants are talking to me now. Since the start of this church in 1997, we've been committed to local evangelism activities. We've had dozens of local outreaches and training opportunities and sermons like this. However, we've never had consistent leadership in our local evangelism ministries. Many of those who led those ministries were also encumbered with three, four, or five other ministries. We need leaders in evangelism in this church. Not, lead, not leaders who take evangelism as their third ministry or fourth ministry, but as their number one ministry. We need them. Will you pray for them? Will you consider whether or not you are one of them? Our commitment to foreign missions will always remain strong. But currently we're doing more for foreign missions than we are doing for our own community. And that has to change. God gave us this building, now we're here. We need a commitment to reach people right here and in our surrounding communities. What are we doing? We are currently supporting a full-time local evangelist and discipler at the Naval Academy, and what a wonderful ministry he has, Pastor Kirby. We're live streaming. Some of the guys do that in the back. That reaches some people. We have a commitment to get on the radio. That will increase who we're reaching by a hundredfold an expression of getting the word out as much as we can. A couple of the men have volunteered recently to revive our Discover Hope evangelism tables. Our vision is to put nice-looking, well-stocked, literature tables where people can do passive evangelism. That is, it's up to people to come to to the table if they're interested. It's our goal to put those tables in dozens of locations all around Columbia and the area where people can walk up to it and they can get free literature. And if they want, they can find out about the gospel of Christ. We've done that many times in the past. We just need consistent leadership and people to volunteer for that. You will be called on. If you're afraid to evangelize, that's a great way to begin. You don't have to say a word. You'll be teamed up with someone else. The care ministry has a care day they're going to be telling you about soon and they need help with that. Where We're in partnership with a local hospital where we're going to care for the people in this community and try to also have a witness in the midst of that. Awana is a ministry that has incredible opportunities for evangelism. If we get all of the supporters in there and workers and they can plan how to help families, lots of times the gospel comes into home through the children. Did you know that? And this uh, love of our children in this culture is a wide open door for the gospel into the lives of adults. We did that in day camps years ago where we would have all kinds of people come day camps. By the way, it would be wonderful to have summer camps because they come to the summer camps and then you have end-of-the-year programs and you give the gospel to these parents The missionary in Spain have talked a lot about how much the the Spaniards love their children. One of their strategies is an educational strategy in order to reach the children and back the gospel up into the families. Speaking of that, Hope Academy is our very own school, and it has tremendous, wide-open opportunities for us to come along parents and to win children to Christ. They're the next generation for the church to work not independently, where everyone's doing their own thing, but collectively, where they're pooling their resources and helping parents to win their own children to Christ and being what we ought to be, and that is a community of believers. The opportunities with that school are boundless. The amount of fruit that can be for off for the future is something you cannot even calculate. I guess uh, because people are getting news of my, my serious health, I got a letter from a fourth-grade student from some... 25 years ago, and he felt compelled to write me a letter, and uh, he basically said, you know, I loved fourth grade, this and that, and then I strayed from the Lord, and now when I came back, I remembered your example in fourth grade, and it mattered to me. I'm walking with the Lord, so is my family, and so are my kids. You never know what good parenting and then good Christian schools can do working together in reaching the next generation. We have a generation of children that need to understand the gospel and apologetics and how to defend it. We have an advertising ministry that still needs to get off the ground. There's so much we can do with advertising that lets people know what we're doing as a church that will draw them in and help them to hear the gospel. Easter is approaching. If people would use their creativity and give us flyers and we would think about using that Easter service as well, wonderful time to witness. Our youth in ministry should be trained how to defend the gospel. And many times, the most open people in our culture are young people. And we could be doing so much more with training our youth and getting them to reach out to other youth. Speaking of invitations and inviting people to church, we used to have a thing called invitation ministry. I am, is what I called it. It was a little corny. But uh, basically someone stood in the pulpit and held up some literature and said, hey, I, I know I invite people to church all the time. Here's what I do. You can use this, use this. One of the best ways for people to come to know the Lord and see the family of God together is to come in here and kind of observe what happens and they can be drawn to the Lord. They may not get saved that Sunday, but they begin begin to understand something that they didn't understand before just by inviting somebody to church. Listen, if you win one person to the Lord, you don't win just one person to the Lord. Do you understand that? It's like a tree that begins to grow in this branch and this branch, and he invites this person, then this person gets all excited and goes on a missions trip. You have no idea how that one conversation will change things. And I'm out of time And this only scratches the surface. There's so much more that can be done if we're willing, if we're committed. Listen, before the persecution comes, we're not being persecuted now. What's holding us back? Ourselves. I don't think that's what the Lord wants. Let's pray that God will shake us up and lead us in that. Father in heaven, Thank you for the example of these sincere, vivacious believers who gave up property and home and were still excited about the gospel, maybe even more excited. Help us to not be weighed down with materialism, but to love to speak to others, whoever will listen. Lord, sometimes we're discouraged because we talk to the same people over and over and they don't want to hear. Teach us the wisdom of looking to new places and going to new locations and finding new people to talk to. Help us to see the wisdom in that and not staying put always in the same place, but moving around, making new connections, finding new people to talk to, going into places we're not comfortable, but people may listen more. Remind us of that, Father, and, and challenge us and help the leadership that we need in the church in that area. We pray it for Christ's glory, Amen.